Well, good morning, everybody. If you've been with us at all this summer, you'll know that we're in our summer psalm series, and we're coming to the end. Is this last week? Or two more weeks after this. So I can't say they saved the best for last. <laughs> at least not today. But one of the fun things that we do is we give our elders an opportunity to exercise our spiritual gifts, and I'm thrilled to be with you in this capacity this morning. Last week, you heard from our tallest elder, and this week, you're going to hear from the shortest elder. Always a joke at your own expense. The other thing this summer has brought with us is a lot of growth. Last week, we were able to add a handful of new members to our congregation, which is always just such a fun time for us. But also every week, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed there are faces I've never seen before. And um, that's wonderful that God's bringing new people to us to worship alongside of us and to join with us in membership. But because of that, I want to take a little bit longer time of introduction this morning uh, because I know I know I don't know a lot of you. And so I think I got a picture of my family. Uh, there we go. If we've not met, uh, my name is Brad Jackson. So I am one of the elders here at the Oaks. And behind me on the screen is my beautiful family. My wife, who you just saw in the video before, on the Junior Oaks video, uh, her and I, we've been married for 16 years. Well, coming up on 16, I should say, this, this Christmas. And uh, someday I'll have to tell you the story of why we're, how we got married in a jail. It's a true story. My favorite dad joke is that we went from cellmates to soulmates. Yeah. I know she loves that one. Along the way, God blessed us with five beautiful children. Uh, my daughter, Sayla, just turned 13 this year, so we're now into the teenage years of parenting. And I've got four boys that we often get asked if we have two sets of twins. We do not. We do have one set of twins. They turn eight on Tuesday. And then our other two, Bo and Jude, uh, are six and uh, four. I've got to remember all that. We've been part of the Oaks Church since 2018. We came in October after a, a year-long church search. And uh, we, got, we got fatigued from looking for churches. I don't know how many out there might have ever experienced that. And so one week, Joy kept the kids home because we were tired of putting them in new nurseries. And I said, well, let me go check out the Oaks. And before the service was over, I was texting, this is it. We found our place. And I'm thrilled to be a part of this church. And so if you're here today and you're a first-time guest with us or maybe a second, third-time guest, it's my hope that we are also a home for you. One last thing before I up, open us up in a word of prayer. And it's something that Kyle said last week. If you're here today and you do not have a physical copy of God's word, we would love nothing more than to give you a copy. So we have a handful on our, our welcome table back there for the sole pur purpose of giving them away. So whether you jump up now and grab one or on your way out today, please take one of those with you. Now, before we jump into Psalm 78, let me say a prayer for our time together. Father, I am so grateful that we serve a God who has a desire to be known. You've given us both your written word and your living word, who is Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would walk among us this morning, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and a heart to receive your wisdom. Be with me as I preach your truth, and may the Spirit give me clarity of speech and a rightly placed passion for your name. May all glory, honor, and praise be to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I have kind of an unorthodox introduction this morning. 
I don't have a cute story or a funny joke to tell to get you to pay attention. Rather, I want to start with a confession, and, it, and it's it quite a, a true confession. It's not going to end in some punchline, uh, but it's my hope that maybe this confession would encourage you this morning, and that is this. I struggle to relate to the Psalms. I don't know how many of you out there have a book in the Bible that you're like, I just, I just, I can't connect with it. And Psalms are a funny one because it's, it's a typical one people go to often. But for me, if you know me well enough, uh, the way God wired me is I'm never really high emotionally and never really low emotionally. And what I find in the Psalms over and over is the Psalms are full of exuberant praise or anguish lament or feel, fearful cries out to God. And every time I read it, I acknowledge its truth and I'm thankful for it. But it's just not my personal lived experience. And for that reason, when Terry Lee asked if I'd take a week, I was really hesitant. I, like, I, I don't know if the Psalms are up my alley in terms of preaching. But after a conversation with my wife, I, I said, yes, I would. And we picked Psalm 78 because it's more along the lines of sort of how God's wired me. But, you know, I don't know how many of you find that to be true. The Bible is um, both a very simple and a wildly complex book. It's simple in the sense that it has a main message that is told in every book, and that is God loves us enough to redeem us. And you can say that in a hundred different ways, but in essence, the whole book, every, every, every chapter, every verse tells the same thing. But it's also extremely complex. What we know about the Bible is that it's made up of 66 individual books written by no less than 40 individual people over some 1,500 years of history. You know, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired by God, and all of it is profitable for our sanctification. And so no matter what genre of book we come to, whether it's historical books, whether it's poetry like the Psalms, whether it's the Gospels, whether it's letters written to churches, whether it's uh, apocalyptic literature that's so rich with, with figurative language, no matter what it is that we come to, it, it is applicable to us. It is good for us. So why do I tell you all this? Well, one is I think God asks us to do more than often we're willing to give. Studying the Bible is not something you open up, you read something, you feel inspired, and you go and, and do it. Sometimes it takes a long time of searching and trying to understand what it is that God's communicating through a book. We cannot expect sanctification and biblical understanding to come easily, but it is worth the effort. And second, and this I, I've said this many times even here at the Oaks, and it's the lesson that, that I learned again while studying this passage, is that when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells God in his prayer, this is eternal life that they may know you. And so when we come, whether it's on Sunday morning or your personal devotional life at home, when we engage with Scripture, easy passages, hard passages, books we, we gravitate towards and books we don't, what we're doing is we're engaging in the practice of eternal life in the here and now. It's not something we're going to think about after we're dead, gone, and in heaven. Eternal life is knowing God. And so this morning, the hook is this, is that I want you to study with me this morning as a way to experience that eternal life. I want you to grow in it. I want you to relish it. I want it to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. So, if you would, sit up a little straighter, maybe on the edge of your seat, roll up your sleeves, and let's study together. With that said, please follow 
along as I read the first eight verses of Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. If you're taking notes this morning, my main point is this, is that we have a responsibility to tell of God's past faithfulness to his people, to guard against future unfaithfulness by his people. We have a responsibility to tell of God's past faithfulness to his people, to guard against future unfaithfulness by his people. And we're going to break this text down into three C's. Usually I'm not a fan of alliteration, but today I'm choosing to use alliteration. We're going to look at the context of this text. What is to be known as we approach this passage? We're going to look at the command of this passage. What is it that God's word is instructing us to do? And lastly, we're going to look at the consequences of obedience and disobedience to this passage. So let's begin with context, and we're going to be here for a little bit. First thing that I always like to do is look at the author. And in this particular author of of this psalm, it's not David, but Asaph. And I know if you like me, when I was a younger believer, every time I'd read a psalm, it seemed like it was a psalm of David. So I assumed David wrote all of the psalms, but that's not true. His name is credited to at least 73 of them, but Asaph, which was his chief musician, both under him and under his son Solomon, wrote 12 psalms, this being one of them. The other thing we know about Asaph is that he was of the tribe of uh, Levi, meaning that he was a Levite, one who was to carry out ministerial, ministerial duties of Israel. So it should be of no surprise that a guy who's the chief musician in the kingdom and a Levite would be writing psalms that we have in our Bible today. The second thing, and I want to point out here what he says, is he talks about uttering dark sayings of old. Now, it's not some evil seance, right? When we think of dark, you might think evil. That's not what he means. He means things that are in the past, right? So he he gives us this, this command to utter these dark sayings of old. All of it, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, we have to tell our story as a country, as a people group, as Israel, so that we can pass on this information. You have to remember that in ancient Israel, you can just walk over to your shelf and pull out a copy of the scripture. It wasn't on your coffee table at home. And so it was an oral tradition. Things were passed down. This was very important. They certainly had copies, but they weren't all over the place. You couldn't just go to the store and buy a copy of of, uh, scripture. So here's what I want to do. For the next handful of minutes, I want you to just sit back and listen as I tell the grand narrative of scripture all the way up into the point of this writing. Because that's going to give you a good picture of the things that Asaph wanted them to tell their children. 
So if you will, think back to the Garden of Eden. Scripture tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it begins the story of all of humanity, including Israel. We see Adam and Eve walking and talking with God. I've often wondered how long that special relationship lasted. Was it a day? Was it a year? Was it 10 years? We're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what the Bible does tell us is that that relationship ended. And it ended because they were given a directive. Sounds like a pretty simple directive. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know, as one of the first Bible stories we tell our children, we know what happens next. They were deceived and they grabbed the fruit and they ate of it. And as they took the fruit, they lost the relationship. But God proved faithful in the face of their unfaithfulness. Instead of casting them out of his presence forever, with no way back to him, God begins to tell a redemption story that he purposed before he even created the world. God establishes a covenant with his humans, which we find in Genesis chapter 3. And part of this covenant is a future promise that one day Eve's offspring would crush the head of the deceiver, of Satan, defeating both sin and death forever. Now from here, Adam and Eve leave the garden and begin to fill the earth with offspring. But mankind, all of us, inherit sin from our parents in the same way that we inherit physical traits. We cannot help but to be sinful. It's in us. And I know that you experience that reality every day of your life. And because of this, humanity spirals out of control. And God, in his holy nature, cannot allow this evil to proliferate. So Genesis 6 tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he unveiled the next act of the redeeming story by starting over. So out of the families of the earth, he chooses one, Noah, and his family, by which he would rebuild his creation. And not only did he save them from the cleansing flood of his just wrath, but they also receive a new promise, a new covenant. The Noahic covenant is God's promise that he will preserve his creation no matter its unfaithfulness. This promise allows his people to flourish and will provide a world for him later to enter it for salvation. God's faithfulness shows his love for all that he has made and it is also a sign that one day all creation will be renewed. But man proves unfaithful once again. In a post-flood world, humanity begins to work together to build a tower to heaven. Genesis 11 tells us that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They set themselves in the place of God. So in God's steadfast love and faithfulness, he scatters the people and confuses their language. Now, he did not do this out of cruelty. He did it out of love. He rescued us from ourselves because we cannot become God to ourselves. And out of these newly formed tribes, God calls another man, Abram, later be named Abraham. And now the nation of Israel enters this story of God's plan of redemption. And in Abraham, God makes yet another covenant to demonstrate his faithfulness. He tells Abraham this in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. You see the juxtaposition between what the people in Genesis 11 were doing? They were trying to make their own name great. God promises it here to Abraham. I will do it. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's the promise that we hang on today, that all the families are blessed through the family of Abraham. But a childless Abraham seeks an offspring to bring this promise to pass. And although he originally believed God, he began to doubt and to waver, much like we do now in our own lives. And so he takes the family servant and bears a child, not the way God wanted it. But although Abraham displayed unfaithfulness, God remained faithful and provided a second son, the son of promise, through his wife Sarah. And this son, Isaac, goes on to father Jacob, who would later be named Israel. And Israel, of course, if you know your Bible, has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And their story was filled with even more unfaithfulness. After selling their second youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery, and then lying to their father about it, they find themselves years later on the brink of starvation due to a famine in the land. But God's love was at work. And he sends them down to Egypt where there his brother, their brother Joseph had spent years laboring away, imprisoned, and then through God's hand being exalted into a powerful position in Egypt. And through God's plan of redemption, he once again proves faithful by providing for the nation of Israel through Joseph. And as we skip ahead now 400 years, we, found, we find that Israel stayed in Egypt. They didn't return to the promised land. They stayed in Egypt. And as a result, one pharaoh led to another one, to another one, and they forgot Joseph and all that he brought to Egypt and why these people were here. So they enslaved them for 400 years. They're enslaved by the, by the nation of Egypt. And it's here that God unfolds yet his next plan of redemption through yet another flawed man, and this time it's Moses. And through Moses, God works out the salvation of the Jews from under the oppressive rule of Egypt. He takes them into the wilderness on the way back to that promised land that he promised to Abraham. And here, he establishes his next covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, God promises that Israel would be a chosen nation, a kingdom of priests. They'd be set apart in this world. He would be their God, and they would be his people. They only needed to obey his commandments. So Moses ascends Mount Sinai to get God's law, which Asaph talks about here in this passage. And a mere 40 days pass before Israel, again, proves unfaithful. They make a golden calf to worship instead of the God who has called them out and set them apart. They failed their side of the covenant within six weeks. Now the years go by and they wander through the wilderness. The entire time, God continues with them, even dwelling amongst them in a tabernacle that they set up and take down over and over again. And the book of Exodus recounts God's faithfulness, his provision, and his love time and time again. Israel finally reaches the promised land, and God sets up judges to rule over them. They conquer the land, they build cities, they establish their territory. But their desire to be like other nations crowds out their desire to be God's people. And instead of submitting to a divine king, they demand a human king. Although God knows that this will be their undoing, he allows them to experience this sin for themselves. And though Israel rejects him, God continues in his covenant faithfulness. And after the failed kingship of Saul, God raises up the next man who is part of the redemptive plan, and that is David. And in David, God gives his people a king who follows after him and keeps his commandments until he doesn't. As we learned last week, and Kyle preached through, through Psalm 51, David commits adultery, it turns into murder, 
and it breaks his family apart. It has huge ramifications. But David's unfaithfulness does not deter God's faithfulness. And yet another covenant, God promises David that one of his offspring will sit on the throne forever. And that is where we enter Psalm 78. There's a promise. There are chosen people. They're set apart to God. All these covenants are made with them. They have God's law. God has been faithful time and time again in the face of their unfaithfulness. Now, the remaining verses of Psalm 78 is a poetic retelling of many of these specific events from history. And I could have gone on this morning. We could have talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna God gave them from heaven when they were in the wilderness, the victories against armies more powerful than them, and the list goes on and on. But what I encourage you to do later today or even this week is to read the remainder of Psalm 78 to hear Asaph's telling of these dark tales of of old. So now that takes us to the command of this passage. We've got the context. We understand what the people of Israel should have been passing on in terms of God's faithfulness. Now we come to this command. Look again with me at verses 4 to 5. Asaph writes this, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Now, the command of this psalm is to tell these stories of God's faithfulness to the coming generation. We're to tell of his might, his wonder, his character, his truth. But this isn't the first time we're instructed to do so. We opened it up with it even this morning. Consider again Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what Moses writes years before Asaph writes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." We have a propensity to rely on ourselves. We talk about being self-made men and women. In some ways, we build our own towers to heaven. And to guard against this, we have to remind ourselves of God's hand in all of our work and in all of our lives. Although our successes may appear outwardly to be by our hand, we know that they are not. That's what Moses is telling us here in Deuteronomy 6. Those cities... That was God. Those houses, that was God. Those vineyards, that was God. The Oaks Church, that was God too. What if years from now, Terry Lee and Abby tell their children that through their dedication, their talents, their hard work, and their strategy, the Oaks Church grew from a small group of like-minded believers into a bustling congregation? What would their kids think? That God needs the talents and commitment of his people to execute his work? 
that God is dependent on their level of commitment, that humans can build towers to heaven and make their names great? And then what would they tell their children and the children after that? That we ultimately do not need God because the blessings are ours to dole out. That our cities, our houses, our vineyards are from our own hands. Heaven forbid. Or as uh, Dr. Funches would say, may Kanoita. May it never be. No. Terry Lee and Abby will tell their children of God's faithfulness. How he provided, how he directed, how he added to our numbers, how he gave his victory over our own unfaithfulness. And then their children will have a story worth telling. Now let me tell you a story of my own. During his youth, my paternal grandfather ran from God. And although his parents were believers, he led a life of rebellion. But God had other plans for the Jackson family. My grandfather lied about his age in order to join the Navy during World War II. He was stationed in the Pacific, and he was the champion boxer of his boat. He was, a, he was a mean guy. But after the war, he came back stateside, and he was still in the Navy. And God allowed, and I want to stress that, God allowed a serious motorcycle crash to upend his rebellion. He spent the better part of a year in a hospital recovering from this motorcycle accident. Many months of surgeries to repair his ankle. And during that time, an extended family member from the other side of the country flies out to California and sat with my grandfather and told him of God's faithfulness. And he was there in a hospital bed when he could no longer run from God, both physically and figuratively, that he gave his life to Christ. He returned to Detroit to marry my grandmother. They had eight children and raised them to see God as the only one worthy of their worship. My dad trusted Christ as a young man and left for Bible college. One summer, he moved here to Cincinnati to work in a bus ministry at Landmark Baptist Church. There he met my mother. They married some time after, and now God's faithfulness extended to the third generation from my grandfather. I was raised in church, never knowing anything else. I heard these stories. I watched the lives of faithful men and women, and I experienced a home life dedicated to the Lord. It was in this faithfulness to me that God caused me to be born again at my bedside with my father next to me. And now I'm standing behind a pulpit in Cincinnati, preaching not only to you as a congregation, but also to my daughter who trusted Christ a few years ago. She will have the responsibility to tell it to her children yet unborn. But these commandments that we see in Psalm 78, they're not just for family units. No, they're for church families as well. Our theme this year at the Oaks is to make, to mature, and to multiply disciples. When we first came, I could have counted the children in our congregation on two hands, maybe. Probably not even a full two hands. And today, right behind us in those classrooms, we have dozens of children. Every confessing Christian in our congregation has a biblical command to teach the next generation. And my question to you today is, who in this church are you discipling? And before you think discipling is, it has to be this formal, take someone out for coffee, sit down for an hour and study God's word. That's not it at all. That can be it. And we actually have a discipleship guide to help that process. But just a, a week or two ago, we got a call from one of our faithful church members, Caleb Blair, who reached out to Joy and I and said, hey, Hannah's busy this weekend. Can I come over and spend time with your children? 
Not with me, not with joy, but with our kids. And so as Caleb entertained them in the backyard playing football and whatever they did, I was able to mow the yard and Joy was able to take care of uh, other house duties, things that we needed to do. We never interacted with Caleb. He spent the day with our, with our boys. And when we sit down at dinner at night and we say, give us your highs and lows for the day, anytime Caleb and Hannah blare at our house, they will always say, Caleb and Hannah are here. That's our high. And so discipleship doesn't have to be this huge, ongoing, formal thing. It can be simply getting to know someone, spending time with them, and telling them of God's faithfulness in your own life. My boys will, and, and my daughter will grow up knowing God's faithfulness through relationships like Caleb and Hannah. And that's not even to mention the years that we spent next door to uh, Kyle and Susan Mack and the way that they've poured into our kids' lives of how grateful we are, I can't even, I can't even begin to express. And so here's the question. Right now in our congregation, who's going to be that for the Peters kids or the Renards or the Max, or the Michelins, or the Yokeleys, or the Quillins, or the Ballantines. What about the Kellerhers, the Zajacks, maybe it's the Jansens, the Bone Camps, or the Galts? I can keep going. We've got lots and lots of families now. Who's going to step up and be that? Who's going to disciple these children? Now, I'll stop short of everyone ask, asking everyone I sign up for Baby Oaks, Little Oaks, Junior Oaks, and Oaks students, but that certainly would be a great place to start. Too often in our Western culture, we let it guide our understanding of our faith. We make it so individual. We become so self-absorbed with our growth, who we are, what we're doing, that we wrongly place ourselves at the center of God's redemptive plan. And make no, no, make, make no mistake, God's redemptive plan does include you. But our faith is not to be hoarded, it's to be shared. The church is a community, a spiritual family. And I challenge you to write down names today of people in our church that you're going to pour into. I haven't even mentioned our college-age students, which, by the way, are starting to come back from the summer, so welcome back. I haven't talked about the young married couples that don't have children yet who need discipled by older couples. And I haven't talked about the myriad of children about to be born this very year in our church. As you can see, the opportunity to fulfill this instruction abounds. Lastly, let me encourage you to recall the stories of God's faithfulness to yourself. We've said it before, preach the gospel to yourself and do it every day. Speak of them when you eat with friends and family. Tell them of the way that God has changed your life. Encourage them by telling them your dark sayings from of old. We serve a loving and faithful God and we've got plenty of opportunity to talk about it. Without belaboring that point anymore, let's move on now to number three, which are the consequences of this passage. When you hear the word consequence, we too often think of only the negative side, but consequences can also be good. In essence, we're talking about the outcomes of actions. And so here, Asaph gives us both positive and negative consequences in this passage. So let's address them in the order that he wrote them. First, let's talk about the positive consequences. Look again now at verses six through eight. He says, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so if we stop and look first at the positive outcomes of obeying the, this instruction, we see four different things that take place. 
Number one, knowledge, right? We pass it on. Number two is teaching. That next generation steps up and teaches the next generation. From here, it's hope that leads to obedience. And so, if we, heed on, if we heed Asaph's teaching, we pass on the knowledge of God's faithfulness, his love, his redemption, his glory to the next generation, who in turn will teach their children, and the cycle repeats. They will become disciple makers. We're instructed to keep God's truth in the forefront of their minds and hearts. Deuteronomy tells us we need to think about it as wherever we walk, right? It's on the doorpost of our home. It's everywhere in our conversation. Asaph tells us that this will cause them to set their hope in God. How beautiful is that phrase? We live in a world that's short on hope. We may have wishful thinking. We have dreams that we want to accomplish. We have desires, things that, we're, that, that we want to see come about. But we have little, sure hope. By boldly telling of God's redemptive story, we give the future generation a sure and living hope. Something that has been proven over and over and over again. Placing your hope in Jesus... Placing your hope in what God does is as sure as every word in this Bible tells us. He recalls it over and over, every book. Further, this hope leads us to obedience. But what's more is that Psalm 78 is the Old Testament equivalent to the Great Commission. See, Jesus, in Matthew 28, before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. You can't make a disciple if you're not telling them. Go and tell, make, multiply, mature these disciples. But unfortunately, there's also negative consequences mentioned in this passage. Failure to obey the command of Psalm 78 results in the next generation repeating the same unfaithfulness that their fathers of it, in Israel continued in. We see a similar four negative consequences. Asaph points it out. He says their fathers were stubborn. They were rebellious. They wavered. They were not steadfast. And they were unfaithful. Currently, our elders were reading through a book by Paul David Tripp called Lead. And in that book, Paul David Tripp talks about having vertical amnesia. We forget the blessings of God, which allows our self-glory to flourish. Sin, at its root, is not believing the promises and commands of God, as Romans 14 tells us, that whatever is not from faith is sin. And so how do we combat this unbelief? How can we discourage future unfaithfulness by God's people? It's by telling of God's past faithfulness to his people. And so I have a bonus point this morning, and it too begins with C, and it is Christ. I'll make it brief since I didn't tell you up front that we'd cover it. But, you see, the story of God's faithfulness doesn't end in David. In fact, it crescendos in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Adamic covenant because he's the offspring who, who crushes Satan's head in death and resurrection. He is the one who would fully begin creation anew and redeem all of creation to himself. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, in Christ, we are a new creation. He's the offspring of Abraham who blesses all the nations through his redemptive work. Paul tells us in Galatians that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That's me and that's you this morning. Jesus is also the fulfillment of the law God gave to Israel. 
As Jesus said in Matthew 5, he didn't come to abolish that law, but to fulfill it. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world once and for all. He's also the offspring of David. Isaiah 9 and Daniel 7 prophesy that his kingdom will be forever. He's the son of David that sits on the throne forever and ever. And finally, this is the part of the story that Asaph did not know yet. Jesus was the one who established a new covenant in his blood so that all who by faith could become redeemed to the Father. And one day in the future, we again will be able to walk and talk with God just like Adam and Eve did all those years ago. Our telling of God's past faithfulness climaxes with this story of Jesus. And just like on the road to Emmaus, we too, like Jesus, can use the entire redemptive story of the Bible to point to him. So let me sum things up like this. If you're here today and have set your hope in God through faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's faithfulness, then your call to action is to be faithful in discipleship, to tell the next generation. My encouragement is to start with those in our congregation. Set your mind towards someone in this church, but also fulfill the Great Commission. Go and tell others. Make disciples. Be faithful in sharing the good news of redemption to your neighbor, your co-workers, and your family members. But if you're here today, and I know this will be some of you, and you've never set your hope in God through faith in Jesus, I invite you today to meet one of the elders in the back of the room during our closing songs. We would love nothing more than to show you, in this word, God's faithfulness even to you, so that you can join us in telling the future generations. The word of God is powerful. It is profitable. Every verse, every chapter, every book, every genre, by every author. Whether we gravitate toward the Psalms or not, may it, maybe it's Hebrews or Leviticus or Amos, studying God's redemptive plan emboldens us to tell of his great faithfulness. So my question today is, will you do that? Will you tell it? Will you receive it? Let's pray.